Well, welcome again. If this is your first time at Rev, we're really pleased to have you here. Uh, My name is Andy, as Luke mentioned, and today I'm going to be teaching from the Bible. Uh, We've been going through a series in the Gospel of Luke, which is essentially a letter in the New Testament uh, written to a friend by a physician named Luke to his friend Theophilus, and it's an orderly account of Jesus' life and miracles. Before we uh, get into our passage, we've been going through a series looking at the Easter story, the crucifixion of Jesus, and um, we've been purposely slowing down to catch some of the details before we hit Easter Sunday. Before I get into the passage, have you ever read a story in the Bible that's made you react a bit like this? (laughs) Or maybe this? Or this? Or my particular favourite, this? Uh, the reality is today's passage is one of those passages that's going to kind of leave you scratching your head a little bit, maybe because at face value it doesn't quite make sense. But I'm hoping that as we sort of dig a little bit more into the context and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us, we should hopefully be left looking a bit more like this. <laughs> Great. Uh, let me pray before we start. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your words. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would lead me now, teach through me. I pray, Lord, that we would all love Jesus more than we did yesterday. Amen. Great. So, just a bit of context before we start on the passage. Um, Last week we saw Steph preach about how Jesus has been brought before the Jewish council. Uh, He's been betrayed by his friend Judas for measly 30 coins. Uh, The Jewish leaders have found him guilty of blasphemy in their eyes. And now he's been brought before the Roman officials. So we'll be reading from Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 25. It should be up on the screen. And I'll give you guys a second if you've got physical Bibles. I'm just going to put on my phone to keep an eye on time. I have a 2G phone now. Um, So... uh, You can't WhatsApp me, call me. Um, Right, Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 25. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, They had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people 
and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed him once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that the demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So for my aim today, we're going to be covering three areas. The first is the interrogation of Jesus. The second is the imitation of Jesus. And the third is the insurrection of Jesus. So just a little bit of context to the judicial system at the time. Uh, We know from last week that Jerusalem was occupied by the Romans. And so in a weird way, Jesus actually stands two trials. Uh, The first, which was concerning the Jewish law before the council. And the second, regarding the Roman law. The heart of the Jewish trial was the person of the accused. It was less about what that person had done, but more about who they were. And the Roman law is quite similar to ours. It was more of the committing of a crime, regardless of who the person was. And so we, off the back of this, we need to ask the question, well, why the need to bring Jesus before the Roman council? They've already found him guilty in their eyes. We found out last week that the right of execution in Jerusalem has been taken from the Jewish people, and it's been handed to the Romans. And in other gospel accounts, I believe it's in John, we hear the religious leaders admit that they don't want Jesus' blood on their hands because it goes against their own law. So why did the Jewish leaders need to bring Jesus before the Roman council? The answer is that they needed to find Jesus guilty in the eyes of the Roman law. And this kind of gives us a bit of context to how the passage starts with these unusual accusations because they sort of, they're not really, they don't really fit in place with the Jewish leaders. Here are the three main ones they come up with. That Jesus is misleading our nation. That he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And that he's calling himself Christ a king. Our nation. We know that the Jewish leaders are fiercely against the Roman occupation. And yet apparently it takes one homeless man to unite them. They're now calling it our nation. Forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. We know that the Jewish leaders hate Caesar. They want the Romans out of Jerusalem. We have to ask ourselves, well, aren't you about Yahweh? Aren't you about the Lord? Why the need to give tribute to Caesar? And this one's an interesting one, calling himself a king. Pilate's position in the Roman hierarchy is a governor. And above that position is Herod's. His position is a king. And so there's this cheeky way that the religious leaders are trying to undermine Pilate's position. 
They're saying, this guy calls himself a king. This guy. What's the significance of all of this? Well, we know that they're trying to find Jesus guilty in the eyes of the Roman law because the charges under the Jewish law are of no concern to the Romans. If they brought Jesus before the Romans with a charge of blasphemy, they would have been laughed out of the court. And so they connivingly twist everything to make it seem that Jesus is opposing Pilate and the Romans. But it comes as no surprise that Pilate finds no guilt in him. We, we know from the previous weeks that some of these accusations are lies. And then we get into the dialogue of Pilate and Jesus. Pilate asks Jesus, well, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response is slightly unusual, isn't it? You have said so. Why this sudden change of language? I guess the more colloquial way of us saying it is, you've kind of already said it. Are you the king of the Jews? Well, you've kind of already said it. And I think we should pause on this for a little bit because this is really significant for us today. Last week's passage, Steph spoke about Jesus before the Jewish council. And he gets into this interesting conversation with the leaders where they are asking him who he is. I'll read, I'll read the verses from it. It's from 67 in, the, in chapter 22. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he, Jesus, said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Again, we get this interesting language, this change of language. Why, why is it necessary? What's happening here? Well, what's happening here is Jesus' so-called silence is actually highlighting their pride. Jesus is trying to highlight their pride by drawing back. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where you're trying to explain something or describe something and you just feel like the conversation is, a bit, is going in a loop? It's like, no matter what you do or what they do, no one's going to agree. And no one's going to accept the other person's view. And I think Jesus finds himself in a similar position where he's saying, no matter how explicit I am to you, your pride and your ignorance is blinding you to this. And so what does Jesus do? He gives him over to it. He gives him over to it. In other words, he's saying, well, if you want to act blind, then I'm going to veil this from you. If you want to act blind, then I'm going to veil this from you. And that's quite a sobering moment for us. We have to pause and reflect on this because right now, God is veiling something from them. He's giving them over to their pride. And we have to come to the conclusion as well that God could do that for us. That in our pride and our ignorance, God would give us over to it. And I'm sure a lot of you are saying, why on earth would he do that? Why on earth? Would God give you over to your pride, the very thing that could pull you away further from him? The answer is, Jesus knows the end of your pride. Jesus knows the end of your ignorance. He knows that you will meet it and you will be disappointed. He knows you will meet it and you will be dissatisfied. And it's at that point that Jesus shows mercy. It's at that point when you're most vulnerable that God will show his love. See, Jesus has been in this conversation for three years. Are you the son of God? 
Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Can you imagine being in the same conversation for three years? I think our natural response would be to close the door. Do you know what? I've had enough of you. Get out of my life. And we would assume that Jesus would do the same. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't close the door on them. He leaves it ajar. I think it's incredible that what David and Sally brought this morning is just a confirmation of what God's been saying to us. This picture of this gate. This door. Even in their pride and their ignorance, what we see Jesus doing is he's still talking to them. He's still talking to them, but he's giving them enough. With God, there's still grace. He doesn't close the door on us completely, but there's still space for grace. That door has been left ajar with these people. And in hindsight, and I'm sure that we're going to see it later on in the weeks to come, that the door isn't just left ajar, the door has been torn into. The gate has been swung open and the storehouses of God's grace are unleashed on us. That should leave us in a bit of a tricky position because we have to ask ourselves, do we do likewise? When we're in relationships or friendships or in conversations with people who are very difficult to deal with, who don't want to accept who we are or what we have to say, is our immediate reaction to close the door on them? Or do we do as Jesus does and leaves it ajar? Is there still grace in those relationships? Are there people in your life right now that you can think of where you think, I've shut the door on them? Will you be like Jesus and leave it ajar? I would go even once more. If they wanted to re-enter your life, would they be met with a door that swung open and there's grace behind it. Now don't get me wrong, what I'm not saying is that you should be the friendly neighbourhood doormat and people can just walk right over you. There's wisdom to this. We see Jesus, he withdraws a bit, doesn't he? He gives us permission to say, right now, I need space. But he's not absent. He's still having that conversation. He's still available Will we make ourselves available? If God would so treat us like this, then who are we to withhold grace from others? If God would show grace to us. And then we get onto the horrible part of the story where Jesus is falsely accused. And there's some people here today, and you've been in a situation where you've been falsely accused. Where someone has said something of you that is not true. And it's damaged your reputation. It's ruined your image before others. I think naturally we'd feel justified to retaliate, wouldn't we? Our natural reaction would be to sit down with that person and to just let it all out. You have done this to me. I am going to pay back what you've done to me. We can grow bitter. We can hold grudges against others. I think we rightfully should feel angry. It's not nice for our reputations to be ruined. It's not nice to be treated like that. But I think the thing that we often struggle with the most when it comes to our reputation being falsely ruined or being mistreated, other than the event itself, is that we feel unseen. 
We feel like our case has not been heard. We feel invisible. And therefore we feel the need to say something. We feel the need to do something. What does Jesus do when his reputation is falsely ruined? Jesus knows that God the Father is righteous. What do I mean by this? Well, we see in last week's passage, Jesus uses this unusual phrase that now I'll be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus has full confidence in the justice of God. So what he doesn't do is avenge himself. In Romans 12, verses 19 to 21. Actually, I'll come on to that in a bit. Jesus chooses instead to love. The two things that Jesus does in order to prevent him to falling into sin is that he chooses to love his enemies and he has complete confidence in the assurance that there's a father in heaven who sees his suffering. You see, for us, we can have that same confidence that in the face of our reputation being falsely ruined, in the face of people mistreating us, We don't have to retaliate because we know there is a righteous judge. There is someone who will hold them accountable. There is someone who will vindicate us. That's good news for us today. I do not need to fall into sin. I do not need to retaliate. I do not need to pay evil for evil. Because I know there's a righteous judge who sees my suffering, who sees my pain, and will vindicate me. In Romans 12, I'll come on to that now. Romans 12, verses 19 to 21, it says this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, Overcome evil with good. Uh, The story is told about the late American president, Abraham Lincoln, that as he was running for presidency, uh, he had an opponent who loved to drag his name through the dirt. He wanted to ruin his reputation. He dished out every lie possible, and his opponent wanted to win, but unfairly. Fast forward, we see Abraham gets voted into the White House and it comes to the place where he has to choose his cabinet and there's one position that he hasn't filled. Can you imagine who he chooses to fill that position? His opponent. In his mind, there was no one better to fill that job than his opponent. We fast forward and we see that Abraham has been assassinated and at his funeral, the person who is giving the beautiful eulogy is his former opponent. Abraham Lincoln knew the power of loving your enemies. He knew that there was freedom in loving your enemies. And so we as believers know that we can have complete confidence in the righteousness and the justice of God in the face of suffering. The imitation of Jesus. It's funny, isn't it? In this story... Everybody wants to be God. Everybody wants to be God. And it should come as no surprise to us because we live in such an individualistic society where there's no more moral absolutes that the only thing left that is sacred is yourself. 
We, you know, I think the fastest growing religion in the West is not Hinduism, it's not Islam, it's not Christianity, it's not Buddhism, it's selfism. It's where God's been replaced by you. It's where his law has been replaced by your personal rights. It's where grace has been replaced by entitlement. It's where righteousness has been replaced by self-esteem. It's where doctrine or sound theology has been replaced by any fancy philosophy you want to choose. Simon and Garfunkel in the song The Boxer puts it really well. Still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. We live in a society that encourages us to put ourselves at the centre. Traditional societies probably would have put family at the centre. But in in any case... Produced a false god. We've produced an idol. We see in the story the religious leaders, they judge Jesus under his own law because they want to be judged. Pilate, he makes a verdict over Jesus, and in the other Gospels we see he tries to reassure Jesus if you just follow my rules, I'll let you go. Herod, he treats Jesus like a new toy. Just show me one of your magic tricks. The soldiers, they dress. They beat and they mock him. And the hired false witnesses in the crowds, all they want to do is just fill their pockets. Notice how Pilate had three opportunities to release Jesus. He found him innocent, yet he didn't release him. Why? He falls to the pressure of the people, but I think more than that, he loves the power. Herod loves the adoration of the people. He loves the thought of being a god to them. And in a situation where everyone is trying to prove their power and show off their superiority, there's one person who isn't. It's Jesus. He sits quietly. The one person who we know who could call on a legion of angels doesn't. And that's something for us to wrestle with. We know that Jesus, equal with God, made himself nothing, becoming obedient, even to death on a cross. So in a situation where everybody wants to be God, Jesus sets the real pattern for godliness. Everyone else in the story is self-righteous. Everyone else wants to prove themselves. And the reality for us is that we can use religion or self-righteousness to cover up our sin and avoid God. That doesn't make quite sense, does it? <laughs> Most religions have got the idea of getting closer to God, but we can use religion and self-righteousness to get away from God, from the reality of our sin. If I do this, and I do that, and I act like this, and I say that, it will cover my shame, it will excuse my sin. But someone once said, all it is, is Gucci fig leaves. (laughs) Another great analogy is a Louis Vuitton bag filled with the contents of a McDonald's toilet. Looks great as you're walking around, but inside it is sloshing about. (laughs) Good. You've got the picture of sin. It's disgusting. And no good work can cover it up. Do you know what the religious leaders did before they put Jesus under trial? Does anyone know? They had Passover. They ate the Passover meal. See, in their eyes... They thought they were self-righteous. In their eyes, they thought they were sorted. And yet we find them doing the most horrible thing. 
betraying Jesus. Jesus is a threat to their religion. Why? Because he's a saviour. Religious people want to be their own saviour. Self-righteous people want to be their own saviour. It's not just for religious people, it's for anyone who completely rejects the goodness and the holiness of God. They want to be God's. They want to call the shots. This is the crazy thing about the story. When everyone else is trying to imitate God, what's Jesus doing? He takes their place. Jesus takes their place. This is the mystery of the gospel here. Jesus is standing our trial. Jesus is standing our trial. Jesus has taken our rightful verdict. All of us are guilty of rejecting God. All of us are guilty of wanting to be God. All of us have chosen sin. And in the eyes of his holy law, the penalty for that is death. Yet here we find Jesus standing our trial. He takes our verdict. In exchange, he gives us his innocence. So I say to you today, if you're new here to Rev and you don't know Jesus, please don't take this lightly. The insurrection of Jesus. Now the one I'm talking about here is not the Christ. I'm talking about Barabbas. In the other gospel accounts, we find that Barabbas' first name is Jesus. Jesus is quite a common name at the time. It just means son of the father. This Barabbas, he's been arrested. He's been imprisoned for an uprising against the Romans and for murder. You see, he is a better fit of the model Messiah for the Jewish leaders. They see him and they see what they were expecting. They were expecting a warrior Messiah, someone who would come in and overthrow the Romans. But our Jesus, there's nothing appealing to his appearance. We see elsewhere in scripture that it describes him as someone that would be quite difficult to point out as the Messiah. And there's certainly no physical threat that he poses on them. Just a little bit of context. It's a custom at the time in Jerusalem that the Romans would release a prisoner at Passover. There's nothing special about this Barabbas. It's just that they had the option to take him. So the, the people in the crowds, the religious leaders, they released the Jesus who fits their ideal. They want the Jesus that fits around their life. They want magenta Jesus, sugar-coated Jesus, hipster Jesus, silent Jesus. If you only call on Jesus when it best suits you, he's not Lord of your life, he's customer service. When was the last time you called up your internet bill provider, you spoke to someone halfway across the world about what you watched on EastEnders? what you have for lunch or, you know, the deep stuff like your worries and your anxieties or your dreams and your passions. You don't do that. Why? Because they don't know you and you don't know them. If we only call on Jesus when it best suits us, we've made the relationship about us. It revolves around us. What does Jesus do in this situation? Jesus follows his father's instructions. 
Jesus has made this about his father. We saw in previous weeks he's agonizing in the garden over the fate he has to face. And his words are not my will, but yours be done. The Jewish leaders, they asked for a warrior. What they didn't realize was they gave up the most toughest, most faithful, most humble king. It's funny, isn't it? The only lie that posed some sort of truth at the start. He calls himself a king. He is. He is the king. And our Jesus is leading his own insurrection. Not one against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the dark forces, against Satan, against sin, and we will see finally against death. It's an uprising against the kingdom of darkness. And the king of light is about to win. How does Jesus accomplish this? Obedience. What does true godliness look like? Obedience. It doesn't look very impressive from the outside, does it? It doesn't look like a Barabbas. It doesn't look like a religious leader. It looks like a man being tortured. A man who is trusted in his father's words. A man who is in love with others instead of himself. So to conclude, Jesus is the God of all grace. He swings the door open to us. Jesus saves us by his works and his salvation. We do not need to rely on religion or self-righteousness to make us acceptable before God. He gives us his righteousness, his innocence. Jesus delivers us from the domain of darkness. He's the king who has won. And Jesus' body was broken for us. I think it's right for us then as a response to take communion. You know, it's very easy to take communion and make it about us. I know there have been times where I've quickly prayed about my situation. But Jesus has said to us that we should do it in remembrance of him. In remembrance of him. I was reading in my... um, devotional the other day in Exodus and it's just amazing it, you find the, the people of Israel they've been led out of Egypt they've escaped Pharaoh and this is the command that they're given so they, they, they are told to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days no leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as it is appointed time from year to year. Let me just grab some bread. What I'd never seen before in communion until I read this is that when we break the bread and we drink the juice, it's in our hands, it's between our eyes, and then it's in our mouth. And that's symbolic of the gospel. 
We see it before us, we share it amongst each other, and it should come out of our mouths. And so when we have communion, it's the gospel that we're doing. It's reminding ourselves of the gospel. And then in light of that, we then pray. We then pray about the things that are concerned on our hearts. So can I encourage you, as you take communion, make sure you make it a priority that it's the gospel first, and then it's you. Amen.